everyone, and welcome to Cat's Cradle, the show within a show where I nail the intro every time and nothing goes wrong. This week, we don't have a Nick, we don't have a Kirsten, what are we to do? We're trapped in a hell dimension of my own making. Right. When things go wrong, we talk about things going wrong. So this week, per Nick's suggestion, we're going to be talking about what to do when a GM finds themselves at the edge where their plans meet what's actually happening. Ordinarily, I would be experienced enough in this, but I never make plans, so we've brought in some ringers. Over here, we have the lore master to the world of Baleheart, my GM on Sunday nights. Check it out on Twitch if you wonder what would it be like if Marcus was a reindeer. It's Dylan! Hi, hello. Yes, I do the dungeon mastering thing, which I can call it that because we're actually playing Dungeons and Dragons for now. Yeah, for now. Don't worry about it. And over here, we have from the room where it happened, we have Brian. Hi, my name's Brian. Uh, I am the GM for The Room Where It Happened, an actual play podcast built on communal world building and having fun with friends. Right now we're into our second season where we are playing a game of scum and villainy in what is basically like space Appalachia with a Western vibe and also some emerging sapience of uh, AIs, you know, Appalachian things. So come hit us up at RoomWearePod on Twitter. Yeehaw stories. I use he, him pronouns. <laughs> yes. And over there, and I'm physically pointing, it's Kathleen. You know Kathleen. Yeah, I'm still here. You all know Kathleen. She plays Tissa. You love her. You love her. (laughs) So everyone, I guess I'd like to start by saying, I mean, no one's campaign ever goes to plan, right? That doesn't happen, right? Oh, absolutely not. Never. You're also not allowed to say things that make me sound like I'm a naughty player, by the way. Uh... So basically, you're just telling me to talk bad about Bill for an indiscriminate <laughs> length of time. I can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the favorite. I'm the good one. But I have some experience with this. I've already told you all about the time I tried to run Tama, and I was really desperate for an intro fight, but my players refused to actually fight the egg. And they're all bad. Except Kathleen. <laughs> Who, I must reiterate, you love. But uh, typically, my own plans are fairly sparse. I have kind of an idea of what systems I want players to engage with when I sit down to tell a story. I have kind of an idea of what's really going on. And then it's just a matter of putting down bait, seeing if the players take it. And if they don't, uh, desperately looking for what it is they are looking at. Since I introduced Dylan first, let's start with Brian. Brian, can you tell us a story about your players not doing what you wanted them to? Yes, I definitely can. Uh, Trying to choose one is somewhat difficult. But uh, recently, we had a Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai sort of situation going down in our show. They wander into a small town. Everything's deserted. No one's around. It's a very weird vibe, right? This is the literal description I give. You walk into town. It's a very small town. Uh, Everything kind of coming into a T crossing. There's a few buildings, though most seem to be shut down or boarded up, except for a general store. And then they proceeded to not go to the general store even once. But you literally boarded up every other building. Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) What I did is I just ended up moving NPCs around to make the interaction that needed to happen to propel the story to happen. But it was just like me being like, here, 
is the place you need to go. It's got a neon sign that says the only interactive space. It's the thing in Resident <laughs> Evil that doesn't look like it's part of the background. Like <laughs> It's like in an animation when you can tell it's actually drawn on a cell and not just a painted background. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah. that's the one that moves. <laughs> oh, yeah, yes. Dylan, Dylan, what crimes have been done to you? <laughs> oh, well, I can think of one in particular. I can recount the story. Uh, Kat, you were there. You were there for the birth of the throttler in the north. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly the story I was hoping you would tell. So our very good friend, Bill. We love him. We love him. You love him. You love to hate him. Uh, <laughs> Bill's character, Maisel, had a bit of an issue with authority figures, and the party found themselves, for better or worse, in the presence of a military encampment in the frozen north, and none of them were having a good time with it, and none of them liked anything about the situation, but Maisel, Bill's character, took it to the logical extreme of... Like, there was a lot of ideas thrown around. There was attempted kidnapping. They talked down outright murder. And eventually, when their plan starts to unravel, Maisel throws herself over the desk of this bureaucrat who runs the entire military encampment and just attempts to strangle him to death while surrounded by armed guards that outnumbered the party probably 10 to 1. <laughs> and... At this point, the other players and I had exchanged knowing looks and said, we're leaving, right? We're leaving? Yes, the entire party was on the same page. Maisel's character had been like literally ripped off of this poor halfling man by multiple other party members multiple times. <laughs> and she just like doubled down so hard on just like, no, I'm going to strangle this man <laughs> to death. And the thing that ended up having to happen was just... Maisel went to jail, and the party left her behind. I had to write an entire whole episode afterwards about breaking her ass out of jail for being a criminal <laughs> and trying to murder a low-level bureaucrat in his office. Yes. <sighs> Why did I get the reputation for being the most brutal one? Where did that come from? You do a lot of ice murders, I'll be honest. Okay, fair. But none of them are with my reindeer hands. Well, and they're well thought out. They're totally reasonable. They're not, I'm going to strangle this man and have no plan on how to get out of my <laughs> attempted strangling. In front of his many guards. I, I really can't get over the fact that it was like, it's like walking onto a military base and then walking up to like a, a rank officer and just being like, oh, I'm going to beat this dude's ass. Like, it doesn't work that way, friend. You can't get away with that. Speaking of which, way back in the day, I was running a Ghost Echo game, which Ooh. had the precursor to a lot of partial success mechanics that we have seen become basically ubiquitous in tabletop role-playing games. We've told you to play it already, and because you are good listeners, you have, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But we did get... Very early into the session, I was playing with just two other people. Um, we were playing by text. And we got to the situation fairly early in. It was some sort of infiltration. And my player rolls two failures. Ghost Echo has an opportunity for you to roll a third die for a little bit of extra chance at succeeding. And that one was a failure. And then the other person helped out and also failed. And the situation was such that it was a high enough stakes role that we all looked at each other or metaphorically looked at each other over text and thought, well, 
uh, this session's over, isn't it? Oh. And it kind of was. But Ghost Echo is a little bit that sort of game where you can just be like, well, you all die horribly. That was fun. Let's try again later. Oof. Which is a little bit different than how to salvage something in a campaign setting. So it's one thing to move around an NPC, but it is another thing entirely, I feel, to have to completely change gears and have to break somebody out of jail. <laughs> um, I killed so many people with yeah. so much ice. Like, Brian, how would you handle a situation like that? Well, actually, we actually did jailbreak arc at the same time that we were doing the Seven Samurai thing. Ooh. <laughs> In our setup for the season, I had done a one-shot with a few friends that were like it was a world-building game. And we brought them back on as kind of like a mid-season gear shift. And then half of them went to jail, and then half of them didn't go to jail. That was actually planned, but... <laughs> um, hmm. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, unexpected consequences are just kind of par for the course, especially in a game where randomization is the inherent draw of role-playing games. Otherwise, it would just kind of be an improv exercise. Uh, if you're just playing at home, roll with the punches. Just figure out a jailbreak. If everybody goes to jail, maybe use a different system for a short period of time to represent the change in dynamics or tonal shift Ooh. that's going on. Um if you're doing this for a show, <laughs> which, uh, like, I think f at least 50% of all listeners of Tabletop RPG podcasts are running a Tabletop RPG podcast. <laughs> so this is advice for you. When you give a player consequences, you're giving them to yourself, too, <laughs> as the person who's <laughs> running the game. Don't ever paint yourself into a corner. There are a lot of different ways to hurt players that aren't sending them to jail or killing them. Their feelings are way... Easier to hurt than their bodies are. Uh. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes. Because my biggest the players not doing anything you want story involves their feelings. <laughs> I would love to hear this. Yeah. So um, those of you who've listened to Sword of Symphonies have met Rada, Penelope's rival. And we created this character in a cat's cradle, much like this one. Nick and Kathleen sat down and built a character to be a rival for Kirsten's character, Penelope. So the second this character is introduced... My notes are just like, this person is a rival, openly antagonistic toward Kirsten. <laughs> I'm putting everything on the table that Kirsten's character cares about. And her response is just like, huh? Friends. And I'm just, no, I, this is the one time I need you to, like, please. I am begging you. I'm being openly antagonistic. I'm threatening your snacks. I'm literally threatening your snacks. Kirsten, please, I'm begging you. It took a minute. <laughs> it took I think we had to outright be like, no, Kirsten, Kirsten, I need you to understand what's happening. Like, we need to sit Kirsten the player down. Yeah. <laughs> Th that honestly would be what I would first kind of start off with is uh, before I would introduce a big NPC like that who isn't going to be like, say, the main villain. If I'm introducing somebody as a rival for a player, I would typically talk to them ahead of time. Because, like, the, the key thing, like, it's not about you hurting them. It's about them hurting them. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't mean that in an antagonistic way. I, when I say that, I usually mean it in jest. But I am the big proponent of the be a fan of your players. When generally people propose to me a ridiculous idea, I'm like, yeah, sure, let's see what happens. Because I like seeing the drama that happens. 
And by creating that sort of flow back and forth, you also create an environment where you can push things, you can do things, and everyone will go along with the plan a lot easier, I found as well. Hmm. But in situations like that, the easiest way to not have to like scramble desperately to fix something that's broken is to make sure everybody's kind of on the same page. I know that removes some element of chance or surprise or maybe real reaction, but Tabletop RPGs are a meta experience to begin with because mm-hmm. you're constantly floating in and out of characters, in and out of levels of separation between things. And it's fun to kind of play with that, especially when you're playing with the audience or treating the players as also the audience with things that are happening mm. by letting them know something bad's coming. You know, it's the Hitchcock explaining the bomb under the chair. Right. You, the audience, you, the DM, and the players all know there's a bomb under the chair. That's what the clocks are in Blades in the Dark. Uh, (laughs) But it's about, like, the characters in the scene don't know that there's a bomb, and nobody knows when it's going to go off. So that kind of helps build the tension in in my head. Really lean on the dramatic irony, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, big fan of Blades mechanics. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So now, I guess, Dylan, what's your advice for people who end up with their own mad stranglers? First and foremost, I do want to kind of piggyback off of that last point that that Brian made. I think that it's a bit overrated to try and shock your players. I think it's a habit that comes from a lot of people having played home games. And if we're talking from like a, if you are in fact trying to tell a story and it is for a, a piece of media that you're creating, sometimes transparency is the best policy for those things is it's okay to just tell the truth about what you plan to do to your players and have them help curate what that experience will be on the back end. Um, Mm. That said, when things do go awry and and horribly fall apart, as they are one to do constantly, I find (laughs) the biggest thing I've found for my own running of games is First of all, that my style tends to be about building blocks over creating a linear narrative. I like building chunks that I can kind of handle and manipulate and move around. That's been like the best assist in being able to adapt to unexpected changes in players' decision-making or just overall things going uh, out of your expected plans is to write your story in a way that it is all about these interchangeable building blocks that you can move around. I like having what I almost call like a flashcard method where it's like you just have a bunch of ideas on like mental pieces of paper that you can rearrange into whatever order suits what you need to adapt and and roll with. Also, I'm a fan of uh, sometimes you just got to lie. <laughs> That's always a good one too. <laughs> Sometimes when things go out of your control, it's like as the GM, you just have to accept that, like, maybe it's time to lie a little bit and get things back on track. What? What? Lie about what, Dylan? Uh, Pretend you planned something you didn't and just lie through your teeth Mm -hmm. and make up reasons why things go back on to the rails. Now, save that for extreme circumstances, but... Sometimes that's a useful tool to just like, I don't have a plan to fix this. So I'm just going to lie and get things back to where I need them to be. (laughs) Sounds like that's a really good way to balance because I am not a prep heavy GM. My notes are, as I've said previously on other episodes of Cat's Cradle, a disgrace. 
But one of the big problems of being a GM who does a lot of prep is this perceived loss of flexibility. And I think a method like you've described, this flashcard method, is a really good way to balance both being able to do the in-depth prep that lets you really flesh out a scene or a set piece and also be able to respond to your players' behaviors. So that's a really interesting way of thinking of it. Thank you, Dylan. Yeah, I like that. And that was a lot how I kind of ended up plotting my arc that I GM'd just a few weeks back on Sword of Symphonies was that I had a big event that was going to happen and a big character that you were going to meet eventually. Physically. Yeah, 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 yeah. Physically big. Physically big. In both cases. Mm-hmm. Like, y'all were going to get rained on real bad. There was going to be flooding. And I was just interested in seeing how you were going to deal with it. Like, you didn't have to stay overnight. <laughs> we could have just doubled back. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I essentially have like, okay, these are the broad strokes that are going to happen. These are sort of things that I want to describe and talk about. And I made a couple of like short lists of descriptions of plants or insects or animals that I had thought of and then didn't use and made up other things on the fly as I think tends to happen in Peach Garden Games kind of playthroughs of anything that we've done. But yeah, being modular, having enough notes that you can work off of without tying you down, I think is a really good way to look about things. And that's kind of how I tend to think about things anyway, I suppose. Okay, I've decided that there's another thing I want to talk about. I've decided this. What are your notes like? Maybe the most interesting thing that you've put in your notes. And I think listeners already know this because I read it out loud. But uh, if the party is underground at nightfall, brackets, and better be careful or I'll fucking do it, end brackets, there is a horror in the tunnel. And uh, that's one of the few times I actually wrote notes for anything, and it was a threat. So (laughs) I think I'm going to go in reverse order this time, which means, Dylan, what are your notes typically like, and what's kind of the most interesting or unusual feature of your notes lately? Oh, man. Okay, so this is kind of tough to answer. My notes are bad. Um, (laughs) They've got to be better than mine, love. (laughs) Well, see, the problem, Kat, is that... The flaw of your notes is their brevity or non-existence in certain cases. (laughs) Yeah. The problem with my notes is that there's too many, too many all the time. Oh, Uh, no. I take a method of note taking where rather than writing explicitly like session notes, I just write hundreds of pages of lore notes and then read them over and over again until I go crazy in the head. Okay. And just recount them. Most of my session planning ends up being going back through pages and pages and pages of these just world-building notes I've built up over time until something just sticks out as being like a thing I want to reference. And then I write it down as like a single line on a piece of paper and go step by step until I flesh out this essentially list of ideas I want to touch on. And then anything that doesn't get used, I just recycle and keep for later to, to use it at another point in time. But it's my notes are like four or five different actual physical notebooks and three different note taking apps that are probably collectively a couple hundred pages of just info. Dylan, no. (laughs) You're hurting me. (laughs) You're hurting me. (laughs) (laughs) That 
that's scaring me. I'm going to have nightmares. But that, um, so basically you build a lot of world building notes, which you then distill into session notes. Is that kind of a good summation there? Yeah. It's a lot of looking at things I wrote like six months ago and thinking, hey, that's neat. And then writing it down again. Oh, fun. <laughs> Brian, Brian, tell me about your notes. What do your notes look like? Uh, I'm probably more closer to the note card method, except I just have a bullet pointed list. Okay. I'm like, all right, what do we need? Because like the way that we record in the way that we do sessions, I know I have like a four hour block. This is when I got to get my shit in. I'm, I'm like, all right, here's going to be this month's of recordings, basically, because I chop them up into hour long blocks. So I come up with like four to six major points that need to happen. Keep track of my time. So things are moving at like a good clip. And just kind of go with that. I also kind of do the lore thing. Like I have not necessarily like an extensive amount of lore, but what I'll usually do because I work, uh, I have like a, a job where like it's very quiet all the time. And so I listen to either podcasts or music all day. And so sometimes I'll just put on a uh, specifically curated playlist and just like vibe and think about things. Fun. And then remix media that I like and things like that. So that's more or less my procedure. I don't think I've ever written anything like particularly funny in my notes, except for like a major bad guy whose name I wrote down correctly and then mispronounced on the show, but then never changed his name in my notes. So that was fun. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Just an unusual spelling that isn't borne out in the pronunciation. Lots of people have that. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Just <laughs> I was just going to say I was blown away by the idea of writing something in your notes with the intention of being funny because my notes are like horribly, horribly unfunny, like they are anti-funny. <laughs> that was a novel thought that crossed through my mind for a moment. It was like, wait, you can make joke in notes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally everything I do is for my own entertainment, and that includes my session notes. Oh, probably the weirdest note. Technically, I guess this is a note. It's a prep tool. For our season two, I had one of my players help me create a custom NPC generator. Aha. Uh -huh. So I don't have to come up with all my NPCs on the fly. What it does is it generates wild names for me and then like pronouns and a basic background. And I can just riff off of that. Nice. So that's actually led me into what I want to talk about next. But before I do that, there's a third person. There's another person on this call I'd like to talk to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, <laughs> I was just going to hmm. stare at my computer for a couple more seconds, Kathleen. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Why can't you let me have my very, very wrong comedic timing? <laughs> <laughs> um, most of my notes end up being scratching down, like, when I'm playing, end up being scratching down names of things, because I want to be good at remembering names because my character isn't. Yeah, you're the big note taker on Sword of Symphonies. It's true. And then I edit the show, so I know all of the things, I think. My notes for GMing. Um, probably the most interesting tidbit for Kat, I think, is that Achirath was not the dragon's original name mm. because that was not going to be the dragon's original place in the story. Oh, the dragon ending up having a second identity was something that ended up being improvised. 
when you all decided, no, we're going to check out all of the flooded buildings, I was like, well, I have to put something there for you so that it wasn't in vain that you went here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's when I came up with the compass. And then I had the idea of the compass. Like, compasses are tied to Tidal Augustine. Yes. And dragons are also tied to the Daoliths, the gods of the setting. So I thought, well, it would be really interesting if a really old dragon that was tied to Tidal Augustine also affected a compass. Yeah, I thought that was a really gorgeous touch. Was that prepped or was that just, did that enter your beautiful head? That just entered my head and I was like, we're going to roll with this. This becomes much more interesting. So I rejiggered a little bit what the dragon was up to. And I like the way that it turned out a lot better than what I had originally planned. Nice. I also started Achirath up for an encounter in case you really, really were insistent on turning off the storm, in which case the dragon, which was going to come down and like be really upset with you because that was a bad move. How turn off? Can't turn off. Storm happened. Can't. Oh, no, we were idiots. We could have. We could have done it. Uh-huh. There's, you can't put anything past us. And by us, I mean me. It almost happened. Like, Kirsten was flirting with the idea. <laughs> yeah, but that's Kirsten's single most ridiculous character. To, to... We, we've spent, <laughs> we spent a 10-minute listing that we do of ridiculous shit that Kirsten's character, Rick Carter, has done. <laughs> just, we just keep finding new examples. Um, it was the model for our new ad, actually. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of some behind-the-scenes dunking on Kirsten. Sorry, Kirsten, we love you. Is it behind-the-scenes dunking if you do it in front of everybody? <laughs> it's not, no. It's absolutely not. Regardless, regardless of whose ass I'm going to kick and why and for what nebulous reasons, and I hardly ever have reasons for anything I do, Brian brought up something very interesting that I'd like to drill down on, which is coming up with NPCs. Because we all know the pain of the players asking someone's name. <laughs> it's, I know in my case, I have my go-to naming scheme, which is to say I always use Old English. It's very Tolkien of me. Tolkien was also an Anglo-Saxonist. I translated Beowulf in college, and I haven't really let go of that. So virtually everyone and everything in Amilta, even Amilta itself, is named in Old English. So I've got a list of translated Old English words that I just kind of pick names from as it's relevant. Very often the players will ask me what something's name is and I'll be like, hold on, we're going to pause this recording for several minutes while I look up a translator and pick a cool word. But usually by and large, it's not difficult for me to come up with the people that populate a scene. It's just when the players decide to turn their attention on someone that I'm like, oh, spaghetti, I need to have an individual now. Oh, boysies. So um, uh, now we're going to go to Brian. Brian. Uh, as previously noted for this particular season, I created a custom NPC generator. Every time I click mm. the button, it gives me three names. Well, that's good. Previously, what I would use is I would just use Donjon, the mm. repository for all names, and then click real hard on Donjon, just generate a whole bunch of names and then grab bits that I like. I don't usually take like bog standard. It was slightly easier because like our season one was like a fantasy setting. I would use a cyberpunk name generator. So I would just generate cyberpunk name, 
figure out a fantasy species for them to be, keep moving. Uh, <laughs> give them a funny voice sometimes. Uh, but how I kind of avoid getting left out in the cold when it comes to trying to figure out NPC names. A, I edit out all the parts where you hear me flailing and typing. <laughs> I have that power as the person who edits the show <laughs> to make myself look way more competent than I am. It's a wonderful power. I mean, I don't generate every NPC who's going to be existent in a place. But what I will usually do is if they walk into a bar or a club or if there's going to be an NPC I know somebody's going to talk to, I just go ahead and generate them ahead of time. Like as the scene is starting up, I'll just generate names because I have the name generator open all the time and then just kind of suss them out from there. So that's my common method is use an NPC generator plus whatever vibe I'm feeling at the time for whatever the person's supposed to be. Yeah, a vibe is a big part of it. Dylan, some of the people you already did before we start playing, some of the people you already did, like the big red crime man who we all love very much. Yeah, I have two methodologies when it comes to NPCs. One is that I highly curate them ahead of time. And a lot of times they tend to be references to things because I'm shameless Mm -hmm. and will reference media I like. Music is probably the most common one, though that happens mostly with physical locations rather than people. Other than that, uh, due to the benefit of my office setup, I'm almost perpetually staring at at least three to five monitors at any given time. And (laughs) two to three of them will likely have sometimes the exact same random name generator up because (laughs) my attention (laughs) comes and goes. And so doing a random name on on an iPad versus on my monitor, it's just a coin toss, to be perfectly honest. But for real, you should check out they're set up on stream. They look like a stockbroker or something. <laughs> <laughs> From the cyber future. There's 12 monitors. It's very good. It's real good. Uh, I put it to use to mostly watch anime while having my feet up on the desk. <laughs> yeah. The dream. Yeah. 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 The yeah. dream. It's the right way to use four monitors is to watch anime while the other three monitors don't have anything on them. <laughs> NPCs are kind of like hit or miss for me because I have this problem where I get really bad roleplay tunnel vision and I get so caught up in a scene that I am incapable of thinking about the scene that follows next. So Mm. I, I wish I had the wherewithal to be able to like be thinking one step ahead to the next scene of like, oh, they're gonna probably want to interact with this character. I should come up with them now. Like, no brain empty. All I'm doing is just talking. I'm just, I'm character voice. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, cool. But how about this next person? I'm like, haha, what? Hold on. Time out. Let me quickly. Uh, okay. Name. I'm very proud of certain NPCs, the, the curated ones, but coming up with some of them on the spot is not my strong suit. Okay. So I'm going to double down on NPC talk because I'm loving it and I'm having a wonderful time. So what are everybody's kind of favorite NPCs, improvised and otherwise, that they've run in their campaigns? I think my favorite NPC to play that wasn't improvised is Rada, Penelope's rival. They're very teenage in their mannerisms, just a shitty teenager who's here to make Kirsten miserable. And as a shitty middle-aged person who's here to make Kirsten miserable, I really resonate with that. <laughs> and my favorite improvised NPC is Sot. During the arc where everyone was exploring the Countess's domain, 
There was a bunch of children and one of them was just being <laughs> really shitty to Nick. We may have a theme here. And and I was just having fun being a bratty child who doesn't trust this strange adult who keeps telling them what to do. And then I realized that at least one of these kids is going to not be able to return to their family. And when they wanted to come aboard the ship, the party was like, great, what's your name? And I was like, shit, um, <laughs> I should have prepared for this because I've been enjoying playing this character. And I was the one who decided they wanted to join. But Sot's grown into just like a, a really sweet little member of the crew. And I love that little bastard. My favorite curated NPC is a character I particularly enjoy playing because it, it's just me getting to exercise the powers of a GM in the guise of a character. <laughs> oh, no, it's the pervert. Yeah. Uh, we have a reoccurring literal chaos god. That's just me putting on a bit of a, well, it's an obnoxious voice, I'll be honest. It's just this annoying asshole who's just like, oh, I'm the most powerful thing in any room I'm in, and I know it. So you're the great gazoo. Yeah, it's great. Every time Adelaide slash Angela slash the Witch of Grey ever arrives in any scene, it's always like, I'm the most important thing in this room right now. Everybody shut up and pay attention to me. And it's always the players just groaning, except for Bill. <laughs> For Bill. Bill, Bill loves Bill's that sitting pervert. in the corner, clapping his hands, bouncing up and down in his seat, and everyone else is just rolling their <laughs> eyes like, okay, great, this guy again. There was, there was a really notable scene on stream where we could just tell by the slight shift in Dylan's voice that Adelaide had shown up, and Joe and I are like, <laughs> oh no! Like, the, the reveal hasn't even happened yet, and Joe and I are just disintegrating. <laughs> It was very good. Ah, it's a lot of fun. As far as like improv NPCs, that's I'm sort of pressed on that. Um, if I really had to put my finger on it, I would say, as far as like improv, it it would have to be Dalton's orphan, <laughs> Ren. Love that little shit. Because this dude is like, oh, I'm gonna pay an orphan to give me intel in this city. And I was like, oh, I'm just going to lean into them being like an incorrigible little shit. And the first thing they do is pick a fight with the party's gnome and threaten to, like, kick his ass. And, like, a grown man, but small, threatening to fight, like, a 12-year-old for, like, I think, like, almost, like, five straight minutes of airtime. And Joe was just, like, livid with this 12-year-old who's just like, my parents are dead and they'd still kick your ass. And it's just like... <laughs> I loved that line. That's probably my favorite improv <laughs> character where Dalton put me on the spot, like, hey, come up with an orphan. I was like, all, all right. It turns out being shitty children is just fun. It is. <laughs> it's just fun. Ryan, same question. So I have a hallmark in the way that I do things of being way too many people in one scene mm -hmm. where I'm just like, there's four or five instances of named NPCs who are in a room who all need to interact with both the party and each other. Uh, and so there's just like multiple instances of me just talking to myself, which is always very fun. No worse so than in season one of our show, which by the end of which I was basically dating everybody as their NPC love interests. <laughs> Like, I shit you not, we had a party of five people, and four of them had significant others, and I was all of them. Date NPCs. Or I love, you know, we'll have, like, six bad guys for some reason, uh, but probably the, like, core trio of significant others from, like, season one of our show are probably my favorites, which are I, Wyatt, and Odo. 
two of which started off as bad guys and one of which was suspect for a while. We had this running joke of where they were going to date all the bad. I actually had to just by the second kind of arc of our show, I just had to sit down and be like, all right, I need a bad guy so bad no one can like him. Like (laughs) he needs to just be super terrible (laughs) because Wyatt kind of the big bad of arc one ended up not dying at the end of the arc like I kind of thought he would. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, oh shit, now no. you're a character. <laughs> Same thing happened to I, frankly. It's like, oh shit, you're not dead, so now you have to be in existence, I guess. You have to have a backstory and shit. Uh, and they were, they were real fun, <laughs> like, watching those characters evolve, because we played, I mean, when I say season one, it's very much a misnomer, because the first air quotes season of our show was 112 episodes. So we ran for two fucking years, because I'm bad at basing. <laughs> Um, so we basically had like three seasons of that show within one kind of long story and just like being able to play those characters for a very long time, give them their own bespoke arcs, watch them grow and change and have resolutions that mirrored that of the party by the end was super fun. Right now, my favorite reoccurring improv NPC is a character named Angarad. With Severity Comes Grace is their full name. Uh, (laughs) Very good. Yeah. Quaker naming conventions are wild and I love them. In um, a Blade's Hack, you kind of come up with enemies and friends that you already have. They're kind of just on a list. And Angarad is just was sitting on the list of one of my players and we needed somebody for a scene. I'm like, well, let's tie them to this person. They had no backstory except for like the vague hints that Danielle had given me for them. And they've become very fun. They are Danielle's characters on Wine's previous childhood friend slash ex-lover slash it's complicated on Facebook. And they are Mm -hmm. just the peak of like mean girl military captain. And I love playing her like. (laughs) Nice. Sounds like a lot of fun. (laughs) Kathleen. I mostly GM one shots and short thing, so I don't have a lot of NPCs in my history with big, long, loving backstories like most of y'all do. You can compliment mine if you want. You can borrow some of mine to compliment if you want. I could, I could. So what I'm going to say instead, though, is when we were playtesting, friggin' I came here to win. We were doing a setting where I was in charge of the narrative, And we had to develop a highly respected NPC. The theme was street magic. And I love this character simply because of the reaction that it got. She was named Pentella Sigroy. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. (laughs) And Kat reacted even stronger than that at the time. Yeah, yeah. I was livid. And I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> I was so mad at you. It was very good, though. I'm so mad I never got to be there for that playtest because what could have been with my the, <sighs> the premiere of my gamer Sona on I Came Here to Win, I was... <laughs> I had that guy, oh, that was that was in the chamber, loaded and ready to fire. <laughs> Sounds like we need to play I Came Here to Win again. <laughs> it does. We really ought to... Oh, it's a blast. It's fun. Can I ask a question? Yes. Oh my, wait, I can? Oh man. Yes. Uh, I don't see I, why not. That's extremely cool. Thank you. Um, I'm honored. <laughs> I'm getting choked up. Um, <laughs> no, I have a genuine question, kind of in the heart of what we're talking about. Please do. I would like to know, 
for yourself, Kat, and you, Brian, have you ever unintentionally created things going off plan due to something you did and owning it and then ruining your own plans? Because I have an example of how it happened to me. I definitely do. (laughs) I would love to hear this. Because we killed an NPC on Edge of the World that super wasn't supposed to die because she fell in a hole and died (laughs) because of a bad acrobatics roll because the party's like, we're going to swing on a rope and do magic fire for propulsion. I was like, yeah, what could go wrong? And all of the player characters rolled great and the NPC didn't and fucking died. Oh, no. And I was just like, well, I guess she's dead. (laughs) And I was like, I could have lied. I looked at the dice, too, and I was like, I could lie. You could have lied. We wouldn't have known. No one would have known. But I was like, but what if I don't lie? And she's super dead now because I I decided to be uh, admirable and tell the truth. Wow, that's beautiful. I think the biggest time I shot myself in the foot was when the party met the remnants of the Glacier Legion. Because I'm like, okay, so there's not a lot of these soldiers left. They've been under siege for five years. There's like a handful of them. And the party's like, great, let's interact with all these people. And I'm like, oh, oh, I, oh. Like, usually I'm very one-on-one with the players. I don't like to play a lot of characters in one scene. So introducing the party to like six people at once And then the party's like, great, we're going to interact with these people you've put in front of us. And I'm like, oh, oh, what have I done? (laughs) I'm just going to pull focus to Gideon and hope no one notices. (laughs) It worked on me. It worked on you. (laughs) Brian, please tell us your story. So set things up a little bit in the before times in season one when we recorded all in one room, kind of like the reason why we have the name that we do also a name that has just not been great for SEO purposes, like not just because it's a Hamilton <laughs> reference, but then there was that book that recently came out and it totally screwed up all of our Twitter for like a long time. Whoopsie. Yep. But when we recorded all in one room, I made like tons of terrain and models and miniatures and stuff like that because I like making that sort of stuff. So I had created what I thought was going to be this big climactic battle. Uh, extremely scary goon who had been hired by the bad guy at the time to sort of accost the good guys. Uh, They had acquired a MacGuffin, like a literal (laughs) heart of a god and giant ruby. (laughs) And the bad guy showed up and he's like, listen, this is where you can meet me, deliver me the thing, or I'm basically coming for you and yours. And it was a warlock. And funny enough, that bad guy warlock and the warlock who was in our party also served the same deity. So that was a fun. Hmm. But I had a plan. I'm like, I know them. I know them extremely well. And they're just going to go fight this person. I had planned out this long fucking encounter. Everything in the house was some form of animated something <laughs> on top of like a Hexblade warlock that was going to be teleporting around constantly. Mm. So time comes, things are counting down. And then the warlock in the party who was everybody had a class uh, in the game, but realistically, they all had other jobs. So he was, in fact, a private investigator. He was a PI. Mm-hmm. So the the PI dragonborn in the party is like, 
I'm not going to let all my friends get hurt because they had just come off the back of like another fight that they barely survived. Oof. And he's like, I'm not going to let all my friends get hurt. So he takes the heart, loads it up in the back of a van and delivers it to the bad guy. After I'd built a set, created <gasps> uh, 15 separate miniatures for this setup. Uh, it was mm, it was beautiful. And he's like, I'm going to take the heart to the guy. I'm like, what? And he's like, I'm going to do the thing. And I'm like, perfect. <gasps> I've never been so happy to had 30 hours of my life wasted he door dashed that bad boy right to his doorstep (laughs) he went by himself he turned into this great scene it it actually helped propel the story better frankly than the fight that i had planned because it allowed me to start dropping hints that the entity that our warlock had a pact with was not what it said it was because the two warlocks sort of came into conflict and their powers didn't work on each other because why would a patron want its various pawns to hurt each other, right? You don't want your babies to fight. Yeah, so it started laying seeds for that, which was a very interesting dynamic. Also caused an interesting dynamic within the party. Uh, it was great. It, it was the kind of chaos that like, we threw up a uh, rock in the pool and just like rode those waves. Uh, and it was very fun. <laughs> but it also was like 30 hours of my life I never got back. Oh, no. We eventually used the set like eight months later. <laughs> I'm like, I'm using this set. Where I'm just going to shove this one in here. <laughs> I've done that to a GM. I've I've done that to a GM before. <laughs> like, just been like, ah, I can see a huge fight coming, and I think I'm going to do what I can to stop it from happening. <laughs> because I'm the worst. But let's be real. Recycling stuff that you put a lot of effort into but doesn't work, but might work somewhere else, is at the essence of being an artist as far as I'm concerned. It's true. Mm. Every writer, every musician, every artist I've ever known has taken things that they didn't get to use or put effort into and realized didn't work and found little hints of it elsewhere. Mm. Very true. And at one point, I thought that I could segue this into some sort of concluding sentence, but that didn't end up happening. It didn't end up happening. (laughs) Would you like me to try? Go for it. Show over now. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) It wasn't a great attempt, but you know what? Thank you both for being with us. This has been a blast. I think I've learned a lot about GMing, which is probably good. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, anyone who's listened to this has almost certainly listened to the sound of me GMing. So (laughs) please just all come on Twitter and tell me I'm good. Everyone, please. Okay. So speaking of going on Twitter and telling me that I'm good... Where can everyone find you, Bri? I've been Bri. You can find me and the podcast on pretty much all of your podcatchers. It's at RoomwearPod on Twitter. That's also my Twitter. I don't have my own personal Twitter. It's just easier for me this way. Uh, (laughs) Envy. Uh, You can find, search the room where it happened on any of your podcatchers. You'll find the podcast there. If you want to listen to me be a character and not GM, you can hear me on uh, Dumb Kids Playing Hero, an Animorphs-inspired podcast. What? Dope. One of my players wrote an Animorphs-inspired Blaze of the Dark hack called Idiot Teenagers with a Death Wish. Uh, it's very good. Dope. Um, we are cur- like, we're currently in Boston. Actually, that first season's about to wrap up, so you're going to have a break to be able to get catch- caught up, if that sounds interesting. If you want to hear my glorious critical analysis applied to things that aren't tabletop RPGs are, in fact, a Steven Universe, you can hear me on my other podcast, Gay Space Rocks, with my friend August, as we are rewatching. And you can find all of those things on all of your podcatchers and on the internet. 
come talk to me on Twitter. I love to talk to people. Uh, peace. Peace indeed. Dylan, same question. Your rebuttal? <laughs> uh, my rebuttal? That's a confrontational way to phrase it. Uh, hi, I'm Dylan, and you can find me on Twitter at lasers with a Z underscore forever, where I will probably be ranting about the Godzilla Netflix show that got announced the other day Ooh. until it comes out. I saw your ocean of exclamation points. Yeah, I'm swimming in them. It's I'm made of excitement. Other than that, you can also find Edge of the World, which is our actual play 5e show currently on Twitch at twitch.tv slash TFTT underscore live. Uh, TFTT stands for Tales from the Tabletop. You can also find info about the show on TFTTpresents.com and on at TFTTpresents on Twitter as well. That basically will just get you updates about when we're live. And VODs and other edited stuff will be coming down the pipeline soon, so... That's exciting. And we'll be ending our first season and starting a new one, hopefully in the next couple months, which is exciting. Ooh. Yeah. For Sword of Symphonies, I already said this earlier, but if you if you really wish that everyone's favorite homosexual beleaguered party parent was also a reindeer, Edge of the World is a good place to find that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drang is good, actually. Kathleen, wait, no, I know what show you're on. It's mine. Everyone knows what show I'm on. It's this one. <laughs> It's this one right here. Keep listening to this show. Tell all of your friends about it. Tell us about it at Peach Garden <laughs> RPGs on Twitter. Use the email form on our website, peachgardengames.com. Yeah. You've probably heard of this tale before, but please do. We like it when you talk to us. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme. Indeed. Speaking of beauties, beasts, and everything in between, meet our friends at Be Gay Roll Dice. We love them. You're gonna love them. You are. That was a shot directly across Dorka's bow. Dorka, listen to me. A shot directly across your bow, because I love you. All right. Uh, Now it's time for me to nail the dismount, and I think I'm doing it. (laughs) Bye, listener. Bye. 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 Be gay. Roll dice. An LGBTQIA actual play podcast network. Hey there. My name is Sophie Last Name Redacted. My name is Mara Sunshine. My name is Joe Alias. If you're like us, you love fantasy, sci-fi, and all other forms of fiction. Also, if you're like us, you can't stand that the entirety of those genres get dominated by incredibly boring and interchangeable cis, white, abled, straight, male protagonists. Stories like that just weren't relatable to us. So we started making our own. Come join us at Dungeons and Queers, a podcast where we play tabletop RPGs like D&D and Interstitial, and focus on creating stories with diverse characterization and good representation of marginalized groups. We try to tell serious stories in a lighthearted way, focusing on themes like overcoming loss, finding your true family, and subverting your fascist government at every opportunity. Find Dungeons and Queers wherever you listen to podcasts if you're interested in hearing stories about people like you.